I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Something happens in the elevator. They use Dick Rowland as an escape goat is the best way that I can describe it. When Dick entered the elevator, he tripped. He shot his hands out to break his fall. What we think we know. Black Wall Street, myth or reality? There was a young teenage white girl. I'm journalist and author Clarkisha Kent, and in Reclaimed and Rewritten, I'll be exploring the myths and realities of Tulsa and the 1921 race riots that decimated the thriving black community known as Deep Greenwood. Black vets in Greenwood organized themselves. World War I vets, many of them go home put on their old army uniforms, drive downtown to the courthouse where the lynch mob is. The aim of Reclaimed and Rewritten is to find and tell the whole truth of our complicated histories, leaving no stone unturned. Some truths will be difficult to hear and others will bring great pride and joy. The media becomes very prominent in a story and they post to lynch a Negro tonight in the newspaper. If you think about the narrative of westward expansion, you're taught that in school as a success story. It helped make the country bigger, it, you know, an economic project. So for me, the erasure of black participation in that is about denying black people their role in what we consider to be a major important event for the country. In episode one, we heard about the early years of Tulsa and how the famed Deep Greenwood community came to be. In this episode, we'll be unpacking the story of Dick Rowland, the African-American shoeshine boy whose story is cited as the so-called trigger for the 1921 riots. We'll also be looking at the role that community organizing played in the building and the development of Deep Greenwood and the mythologies that surround Black spaces as utopias. Dr. Gerilyn Uhlenberg, author of A Lynched Black Wall Street and former resident of Deep Greenwood, speaks on the story of Dick Rowland. So we spoke previously about Tulsa being a mass lynching event. In A Lynched Black Wall Street, you made the excellent connection that this started up because of the failed um, lynching of Dick Rowland, um, which eventually led up to the rest of the events of the massacre. Can you explain who Dick Rowland was for our audience and kind of elaborate on his role in the massacre? They used Dick Rowland as an escape goat, is the best way that I can describe it. Dick Rowland was a teenager. He was about 18 or 19 years old. He had dropped out of Booger T. Washington High School and he became a shoeshine boy or buff, as they call it. I'm assuming it's mainly wealthy white men that would have used the services of a shoeshine boy. But 
why would they have been in a black neighborhood like Deep Greenwood? Like, it can't just have been to get their shoe shine because then they would have simply had the black shoe shine boys come to their communities, right? The reason all of these very wealthy men would come to the downtown area because Greenwood is literally two blocks from downtown. So this is prime territory that for years, people wanted this land. They wanted this location that these African-Americans had been able to build up. And the guy who owned this property initially had sold it only to Black people. The word was the men would just as soon give you a dollar as give you a nickel in terms of tips because they were wealthy and didn't really know what to do with their money. So in other words, it was very lucrative for him to do this. Geraldine continues on with the story of Dick Rowland. Because of the magnitude of racism, the owner of the shoeshine shop had made arrangements across the street on the top level that Dick and others could go and use the restroom facilities. That particular day, Dick Rowland used the elevator. And back in that day, you know, elevators were operated by elevator attendants. So there was a young teenage white girl and her name was Sarah Page. She operated the elevator. When Dick Rowland got on, the story goes, something transpired. She screamed, the people came running and they claimed rape. But that's not at all what happened. So what did happen? Do you know what happened? These are different options. Somehow the elevator shaft were not even. And when he stepped on, he stumbled into Sarah. Someone else said, well, even if the elevator shaft wasn't that way, maybe they somehow had an argument and there was conflict that transpired. Surely a black man would not try to rape a woman in an elevator in a building filled with white people knowing that he could be caught. The real truth of it, as the black community understands, Dick Rowland and Sarah Page were in a relationship they couldn't do it in a public way because of the hatred for black and white. What did happen in the elevator that day was she hit him. He ran out of the elevator. She screamed and a sales clerk from a close Renbird store came running. They ended up publicizing that and it spread through the paper. So the media becomes very prominent in the story and they post to lynch a Negro tonight in the newspaper. And they began to hunt for Dick Rowland. It took them two days to find him, but when they did, he was arrested. And what was Sarah Page's response to Dick's arrest? The story here is Sarah Page would never follow through on the prosecution or the claim of being raped. She dropped it. Now it did go to court. As a result, that's how Dick Rowland ended up in jail. I am very pleased that you brought out kind of like the pretext that was always used for lynching, which is the, you know, the assault um, of white women by some imaginary, big, scary black man, right? Journalist Scott Ellsworth, who we heard from in episode one, speaks on the media response to what happened that day. 
Sarah Page refused to press charges against Dick. But an afternoon newspaper, the white newspaper, the Tulsa Tribune, caught wind of this, and then they published this fantastic write-up of the event on the front page, claiming that Dick had been stalking Sarah, that he attempted to rape her, he scratched her face, tore her clothes, wouldn't give his name to the police. And there was also a now famous but lost editorial in the Tribune uh, titled To Lynch Negro Tonight, which would have made reference, of course, to the lynching of this white murderer a year earlier. So the Tribune hits the streets at about 3.30 on Tuesday, May 31st. Within a half an hour, there's lynch talk on the streets of Tulsa. That soon leads to action where a lynch mob gathers outside of the courthouse where Dick is held. 50, 100, 200, 300, 500 whites who are there to lynch Dick. There's difference this time, though, because there's a new sheriff. The old sheriff had turned over the white murderer to the lynch mob. The new sheriff is refusing to do so with Dick and uh, is protecting the building. How does the black community respond to this? Remember, this is 1921. There's no radio, there's no TV, internet. Not that many people have telephones, so it's a lot of word of mouth. Word, meanwhile, hits Greenwood that this brother is in great danger. And a black vet jumps onto the stage at the Dreamland Theater and says, shut this place down. We ain't going to let this lynching happen here. Other people gather in front of the newspaper offices. What happens is World War I vets, black vets in Greenwood, organize themselves. Many of them go home and put on their old army uniforms. They're all armed. And at about 7.30 at night, they pile into cars and about 25 black vets drive downtown to the courthouse where the lynch mob is. They approach the sheriff at the courthouse and say, we're here to help defend the prisoner if you want us to. The sheriff says, get the hell out of here. They leave. But their appearance electrifies this white mob. They now go home to bring other people. They go home to get their own guns. A group of them try to break into the National Guard Armory to get the high-powered Springfield rifles that are there. So this situation is very, very fluid, very tense. No one knows what's going on. Rumors are rampant. And then at about 9.30 that night, a rumor hits Greenwood. It's a false rumor that whites are now storming the jail. So this time, 75 African-American vets, all armed, once again, do the same drill. Pile into cars, drive down to the courthouse, present themselves to the sheriff. The sheriff turns them away, but as they're leaving, an elderly white man tries to wrestle a gun away from a tall black vet. A shot goes off and the massacre begins. Wow. Um, that is a lot. I am so glad you mentioned the um, headline from the Tribune that kind of poured just an insane amount of uh, gasoline onto the situation. In your opinion, the To Lynch a Negro Tonight headline, do you think that was like the final trigger that kind of led um, to the events of the massacre? Yeah, I mean, I think it is the event in a way. I think in some ways it's more important than whatever happened or didn't happen in the elevator. You know, remember, there had been a lynching in Tulsa a year before. Um, it was praised by the mayor. It was praised by the chief of police. The white newspaper editor said, this will show the criminal element that the law-abiding citizens of Tulsa aren't going to take this anymore. 
So that was a green light. And the fact that the incendiary article about Dick Rowland was on the front page, but it was pretty small and it was below the crease, whereas the editorial, which is now since lost, before copies of the Tulsa Tribune from 1921 were microfilmed in the 1930s by the Works Progress Administration, somebody had torn the editorial out. They had also scissored out the front page article. We were able to get the front page article, but we've never been able to get the editorial. But in 1975, I interviewed W.D. Williams. His family was uh, one of the most prominent families in Greenwood. They owned the Dreamland Theater. They owned a confectionery. They owned a three-story brick office building. They owned a garage. They were the first black family to own an automobile in Tulsa. W.D. was uh, 16 at the time of the massacre. He read the editorial in the Tulsa Tribune and remembered it. And there were other sources that we have. So even though the actual editorial is gone, there's no question in my mind it, it existed. But what it did is, we don't know exactly what it said, but there's no question that it connected, it reminded viewer, readers, that there had been a lynching a year ago and that there's about to be one. They were certainly... Just shocking. I mean, you know, when I started this research, I was I was a, a between my junior and senior year in college. So I'm 21 years old. I'm you know naive and, and learning about the ways of the world. But when W. D. Williams told me about the editorial, there was no question that 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 was huge and significant. And I convinced that the Tribune was still in business in 1975, and I got the publisher to allow me to go into. Uh, a storage space somewhere across the river in town where they had the actual old bound volumes. And I saw, whereas the front page article had been cut out and that the editorial had been torn out. I mean, that was in a way a smoking pistol right there. I mean, the fact that those are the only two things that are gone told me that somebody very deliberately wanted to get rid of those. There was a lot of evidence that, but over the years about how very early on the authorities in Tulsa determined that we were going to suppress this story and try to get it behind us as quickly as possible. So obviously I'm biased when it comes to media in this country just because of what I've seen and the history of it. But do you think that news journalists can be totally objective or is there always like a bent? You know, I, I, I'm sure there's always a bent, but we can all strive for objectivity, which we should all the time. I mean, I think that that's something you want to do. I mean, you want to tell the truth. You want to tell a story that allows for other voices to be heard. I think that we need to wrestle with facts and uh, and it's important to present them. In my opinion, I don't think particularly in this country, the states, that journalism is objective. I think the media arm of this country has always had an agenda where white supremacy is concerned. And a lot of that is peddling the common white supremacist ideals that exist in the society and making sure people, even unconsciously, are constantly aware of them. So I personally don't think there's objectivity here, but other people would argue something else. you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It seems we'll never know exactly what happened in the elevator that fateful day. But what we do know is that the repercussions were deep and far-ranging. When I think about the history of Black people in America, specifically the story of the deep Greenwood community, I think about the fact that in order to survive within an extremely hostile environment, community organizing was and continues to be critical in ensuring that they had the means to defend themselves politically as well as physically. Carla Slocum, author of Black Towns, Black Futures, The Enduring Allure of a Black Place in the American West, sat down with me to discuss the role that community organizing and placemaking had in the development of Deep Greenwood and the aftermath of the massacre. When we talk about Black placemaking, what we're really talking about are the ways that Black people, both in and outside of the United States, organize and strategize and imagine places for themselves where they can live and thrive and exist. Um, And there are lots of examples of black placemaking all across the country and even today going on as we speak. What goes through your mind when people refer to um, pre-Tulsa massacre, Deep Greenwood, or any other all-black town as a utopia? I think a lot of people do imagine and think about black towns in Tulsa as historically utopian communities. And I think when we have that idea of a utopia, we think about an ideal place, a perfect place for people, and in this case for black people. There's zero question that people were drawn to these communities because they had an appeal. There was this appealing idea to create a place where black people during the Jim Crow era could be relatively safe or safer and where they could organize to build up a community that was striving to be economically vibrant, that was striving to be socially supportive and cohesive. These are some of the markers that we think of for those places. I personally would not quite call that utopia because anywhere we are in the United States, it is hard for black people, especially a collective of black people, to be able to achieve 
that utopia, to be able to achieve that perfection in a place. So when people talk about the history of black towns in Oklahoma, the narratives on black towns were that they were really economically vibrant and successful. That term success is something that often comes up and remarkable. Also, people think about that. And then to think about people kind of supporting one another and having a vision for collective support is also some of the markers that people think of for these communities. And that leads people to also think about utopia. And these are utopian kind of spaces. The issue is, though, that really the communities, there were people that were not wealthy in the communities. There were people who struggled economically. The communities were still um, vulnerable to violence, to white violence in particular. And so the ability to achieve a utopia, I'm not aware of that having um, occurred. And would you say the same for Deep Greenwood? Yes, there was poverty in Greenwood. At the same time, there were people who had some really successful businesses. There was also class diversity within Greenwood. And we know from what we know now about the Tulsa massacre that there were threats to this community all the time. So to achieve utopia, were these utopian communities? I would say they were not, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't a very pronounced positive quality to them at the same time for the people that were in them. So in your mind, What do you think is like the general attitude towards like places like the Midwest or places like the South and how that might color these partial narratives? There is a narrative about the West that is almost exclusively white. Our narratives of the West do include Native Americans, but you're unlikely to hear a common narrative about the West that includes Black people. So... That is just how we have understood the formation of the West, the expansion into the West. We think about expansion into the West as being a white activity, but what we know about black town formation in Oklahoma in particular, but in other parts of the West, that there was black participation. And when you think about the fact that there were 50-plus rural black towns in Oklahoma, what we know is that the black presence in the formation of Oklahoma actually was not a state yet. It was a territory. So the formation of the state actually had deep participation of black people. And that's really important for people to understand. So when I think about rural community formation, we tend not to think of black people in rural areas. And then we sort of also, you can layer on to that the regions of the country. And sometimes then you have a complete erasure of black presence in those areas. But we know that it actually is not true. So do you think this erasure that happens to black people that are living in the Midwest or living in the West, do you think this erasure is like a testament to the lack of historical and political education fueled by this particular country's need to omit the atrocities that it committed? Part of it might be about the atrocities. 
part of it is also, if you think about the narrative of westward expansion, you're taught that in school as a success story. It helped make the country bigger. It, you know, it was an economic project. So for me, the erasure of black participation in that is about denying black people their role in what we consider to be a major important event for the country. I would also say that the erasure is complicated. On the one hand, yes, there are ways in which we are denying the atrocities and the violence that have happened to black communities, not just Tulsa, but others. And at the same time, we're also denying the areas of black success, the areas of black uh, leadership and black innovation in community formation, in the national economy, and all sorts of other areas of the nation. Dr. Eulenberg, who we heard from earlier, has a different perspective on why Black stories are often not a part of the narrative of a nation. And she links it to the lack of value for Black life that has been entrenched in American society since its inception. Everyone wants to be a part of this culture of whiteness. So what we get as a result and what we began to see happening in the early formation of this country, everyone who fit in this category of whiteness did anything they could to show this superiority. So whether we look at history, whether we look at science, uh, we look at doctors, everything that was done and written elevated whiteness while decreasing or devaluing blackness. And so the separation becomes greater. There was a book written by uh, Cynthia Neville called Lynching to Belong. What she does in this book, she looks at what happens in the state of Texas and she begins to see that people coming into the United States, whether they were from Ireland or whether they were Italians or Czechs or any other ethnicity, although they weren't really white, they had this outer appearance of whiteness. And so they begin to blend with this white race and lynching among all the other atrocities and violence puts them in a category that says black life is devalued and not worth living, but whiteness somehow elevates up because we're like God. So if that helps clarify and explain, these components really make a difference in how this American society has been constructed. And the unfortunate thing about all of this is that even today, we think about, oh, well, in 1865 or before slavery, Emancipation Proclamation, that was then. No, we can even fast forward to today and look at how Black life is treated. When we think about names like Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, these are people just killed in the street. We could call the name of Laquan McDonald, who was shot 16 times in Chicago, walking away. We think about Sandra Bland, who was found hanging in this Texas jail for a stoplight or not turning on her signal. We think of more recently about George Floyd, which everyone across the world was aware of. That is contemporary lynching. 
when that police officer put his knee on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, that says black life does not have value. Yet the Capitol in the U.S. and D.C. can be charged on January 6th and somehow people think, oh, these are just people standing up for their rights. So I think when we think about white supremacy, hegemony, oppression, and these interlocking systems around social, political, economic, that causes African Americans to be at a disadvantage, we'll never be able to move forward until we're able to break this cycle. Uh, Let me end on a positive note as it relates to George Floyd. For the first time ever, we saw the world come together in order to advocate and through activism to say to this nation, racism, we can no longer tolerate. We must start to treat people in an equal way. As the white community raged and attacked, Deep Greenwood residents were able to resist until the bombing, a tactic still used across the world to control the flow of resources, political power, and more. Greenwood is destroyed, looted and burned to the ground, a wasteland of rubble, of charred trees. The KKK had never stopped and was fast expanding. Some say that the KKK were not in Tulsa prior to 1921. But if you really look at the research, Oklahoma City, which is the state capital of Oklahoma, already had thousands of members. The truth of the matter is they could have never generated thousands of people if it hadn't already been in existence prior to the massacre on May 31st and June 1. When I wrote my first book on the massacre, I was trying to figure out what to call it. So obviously I knew the new race riot, the term race war had been applied. Years later, I called it, you know, like an American Kristallnacht, you know, the attack against the Jews in Germany. In the next episode, I'll be exploring the aftermath of the Tulsa massacre and the draconian regulations that were put in place by the authorities to ensure deep Greenwood residents were unable to successfully rebuild. I'll also be looking into the heavy-handed laws that followed the massacre that were designed to control the movement of the Black residents of Deep Greenwood and their ability to access resources. We're putting together an extra special episode where we want to hear from you. What are your thoughts on the story so far? Was there anything that surprised you? What does this mean for the Black community globally? Send us a voice note or video via email to podcasts at gal-dem.com and we will not only feature your contribution, but we will discuss them in one of the episodes. Reclaimed and Rewritten is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can follow Galdem on all social media platforms at galdemzine, G-A-L-D-E-M-Z-I-N-E. Thanks for listening.